Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And for context, let's read from verse 12 again through verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear and rejoice and grow by the word. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Let's pray again. Father, now we would commit this time to you as has been prayed, and we just want to be mindful that you are the Lord. This is your word. Uh, We depend on you, Lord, completely for understanding in your word, for spiritual understanding, for spiritual growth, for transformation, for engagement with our hearts. Lord, Prepare the furrows in our hearts that your seed would go in and take root and bear much fruit for the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you who maybe haven't been with us in this series, um, we've been working our way through Romans chapter 8, and the great theme of Romans chapter 8 is the super-invincibility of the Christian um, above all things. The Christian is one for whom there is now no condemnation because he is in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ alone that the penalty for our sin has been satisfied with the divine justice of God. Christ has paid for all the sins of his people, past, present, and future, so that if you are in Christ you have no condemnation, not even the least bit of condemnation. You are a super conqueror with Christ, together with Him. We're going to learn about that more today as we talk about our joint airship with Christ. But this is cause for great rejoicing. This chapter is a chapter of great comfort that is prized by God's people and has been since it was written. Paul has been developing the doctrine of sonship for us recently. We've been really learning um, about the many blessings that come to those who are in Christ. This chapter, chapter 8, is you could think of it as an expansion of chapter 5. Chapter 5 links our justification by faith to every spiritual blessing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the purse of blessings is expansive. We've been learning about those in chapter 8, that we no longer walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. And the reason we walk according to the Spirit, the reason we set our minds on things above, on the things of the Spirit, is because God has sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to dwell. And because we have His Spirit, who is, by the way, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the Son of God, 
we also are sons of God. We've received sonship. We are led by the Holy Spirit of God. We have a new instinct that God Himself has placed in our hearts by His Spirit, where both the Spirit and we cry out, Abba, which means Daddy, Father. We have a new instinct that has given us what's called prayer life, to call out on the name of the Lord from a pure heart in every circumstance of life. And so the argument continues to build. You have the Spirit, and if you have the Spirit, you are a son. And if you are a son, you're no longer condemned by a a God who is a condemning judge, but you are received and accepted by a gracious Father. And if you are a child of God, then you are an heir. That means you are an inheritor. And we began to look at this idea of the inheritance last week. And we asked six questions of the inheritance. Who are the recipients of the inheritance? What is the inheritance? So we have it firmly in our minds. How big is the inheritance that we receive? When will we receive the inheritance? How certain are we that we are going to receive it? Could something happen that would spoil the inheritance for us? And how should this knowledge of the inheritance and being heirs of the inheritance affect the way that we live now? Those are the questions that we want to consider and understand all around this, uh, this, uh, this idea of the inheritance. And we began to look at the first two of those questions last week. The first question, the recipients of the inheritance, we learned are the children. Only true children inherit from God the Father. And all children are inheritors of God the Father. There is no child of God who does not receive the inheritance. The second point, the description of the inheritance, we began to look at through the lens of the promise last week. The promise. And we saw that God gave a promise that was in its embryonic form in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, while he would only crush or bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. A picture of Christ who ultimately would defeat Satan, sin, and death, but that he would only injure our Lord on the cross. And then we see that promise developed more fully as we get into Genesis chapter 12 and beyond where this promise comes to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And we saw that there were three components to this promise, the land, the seed, and the blessing. And that God fulfilled the physical components of the the promise when Israel took possession of the land. He multiplied them while they were in Egypt as slaves, and then He brought them into the land of Canaan, and He gave them the fullness of the land, driving out their enemies, and He gave them peace for a time. But we also saw that the physical promises were not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise given in the garden and the promise repeated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was a spiritual component or a counterpart to each of the physical promises to which they merely pointed. And we saw that the physical land really points to a a spiritual land. It points to a, a true Sabbath rest where God dwells with all His people forever. And we saw in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 that the author to the Hebrews describes that the land is really only representative 
of the place where God's people enter into true rest with Him. And they do that by faith in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what drives away our biggest enemy and our biggest problem, which is God's wrath, which has been revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And He turns away that wrath forever. That is the true spiritual land. And then we see that the physical seed is pointing to the spiritual seed. It's not the physical descendants that the Lord is concerned with, but the children of promise. That is, all who have faith in Christ, they are the true seed of Abraham. And that comes from every ethnic nation, tribe, people, and tongue on the planet. Jews and Gentiles are brought together now in one new man, that is the church with Jesus Christ as the head, and together with Him we are the seed fulfilled. And then physical blessing, that pointed to the spiritual blessing, not that God would just drive out Israel's physical enemies in the land in Canaan at their time, but that ultimately God would be for us and not against us that He would bless us because we have been forgiven our sins and we have been fully accepted in His Son. And so we want to continue to develop this idea of the inheritance today and attempt to answer, I hope, the rest of the questions together. So let's look together at the text again, verse 17 of Romans 8, and let's just look at the, the first part of this. Um, we're we're going to have to take the next part of it next week. I think there's plenty here for today. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, in the Greek here, the way this reads is, and if children, then heirs. Heirs indeed of God. Heirs truly of God. A lot of the translations don't include that truly or indeed. And the The case that's used for God here is the genitive case, which just means that he's talking about possession. So, there's a double entendre, a double meaning, I believe, here in the text. Paul is saying not only that God is the testator, that is the one who writes the will and who bequeaths the inheritance to his sons, but that he himself is the inheritance. We are inheritors of God himself. That is really what the land, seed, and the blessing are all meant to point to. And this truth was announced several times in the Old Testament. This is not new when we get to the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples here just to consider how this was developed in the Old Testament. When we consider Genesis chapter 15, which is where the promise of the land, seed, and blessing was repeated to Abraham from the first time of Genesis chapter 12, the way that chapter begins is by God coming to Abram in a vision, and He says this, "'Do not be afraid, Abram.'" I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Or another way that that's translated is, I am a shield to you, your very great reward. And then the Lord goes on to describe the land, seed, and blessing as components of that seminal truth that He has given Abram, I'm your reward. I'm the true inheritance. In Numbers chapter 18, We have a description of the duties of the priests and how they were to be provided for by the people. And in Numbers 18, verse 20, we read this, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, 
nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. You see, all the tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob, they all inherited land except for one, and that is Levi. Levi from whom the priests come. And there's a reason for that. Because the Lord had purposed that he would be the inheritance for his priests. He would be the one to provide all the needs of his people. And what do we find when we come to the New Testament but that Peter tells us that we, the church, are a royal priesthood. The priest of all, uh, priesthood of all believers, that's the church. And so we also have an inheritance which is the Lord himself. Or consider David in Psalm chapter 16. This was our corporate reading this morning. David confesses this to the Lord in Psalm 16, verse 5. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. David uses a word for inheritance that means a piece of land. He's saying, Lord, you are my assigned tract of land, if you will. You are my cup. You're the one who nourishes me and sustains me. You maintain my lot. That is, you grasp firmly, hold. You hold my lot. You will not let it go. This is a man who started as a shepherd boy, and the Lord placed him as ruler over his people Israel. He made him king. And this man who had experienced what it is to be the highest ranking official in the land did not see, did not look at the world and all that it has to offer and say, you are my inheritance, you are my delight, you are my treasure. He said, Lord, you are my inheritance. You are my true satisfaction and the source of all my happiness. And then Jeremiah, when we get to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, Jeremiah exclaims, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him, and he uses that same word for portion or inheritance or a tract of land. Very interesting how the land is so tied to the Lord himself. And then when we come to the New Testament and really the end of the New Testament, the revelation of John the Apostle, and you come to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, we have this, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. So there's the promise throughout Scripture. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your God. I am your inheritance. I am your portion. And we come now back to Romans chapter 8, and you say, well, has the Lord said anything about this in Romans chapter 8? Or even before in our letter to the Romans well, not explicitly, but hasn't he told us in Romans chapter 7 that we have been married now to the risen Jesus Christ? We have a new husband in order that we should bear fruit to God in Romans chapter 7, verse 4? That's right. And what about in chapter 8, this spirit who has been sent into our hearts to dwell in us? 
we've received the spirit of adoption. And who is the spirit of adoption but God the Holy Spirit? So, we are heirs of God, and what is it we've received? We've received God the Holy Spirit in our Christian experience. This is extremely important to understand the inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 gives good light on this. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, "...in whom you also trusted," referring to the Gentiles, the Jews had trusted and also the Gentiles, "...having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." Notice that the promise is identified with the Holy Spirit, not the land, seed, and blessing here, but the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of His glory. This Holy Spirit that we've received is the promise. And Paul uses the word guarantee, which is the word that means earnest. It's a word that means a down payment, a pledge of money that an individual would put down to show his earnest, his intention to purchase the rest at a later date. And Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is that earnest who has been deposited in us, in our hearts. Why? To show that God will ultimately redeem the purchased possession. That's us. How? By redeeming our bodies. We've already been redeemed in spirit but we are incarcerated in these bodies of flesh, God one day is going to release us from that prison and He's going to give us glorified bodies that are like the Lord Jesus Christ's glorified body. That's when the purchased possession will be complete. Our redemption will be complete. The Holy Spirit is His pledge to you and to me now that He will most certainly do that. We have inherited God, the Holy Spirit, as His pledge of what He will do in that final day. Do you see why learning about this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 is so wonderful? He's given us, brothers and sisters, a taste of the inheritance now. Now. We learned in Romans 8, 6 that the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. We have life, spiritual life. And in biblical categories, that means we've come to a knowledge of God, a true knowledge of who God is and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That is eternal life. You no longer are dominated by your sin. If you are in Christ, He has given you freedom from the domain of sin, where sin used to dominate all of you. All your members, all your faculties, your power of thought, emotion, will, all of it was sold under sin, and you had no ability to say no to it. But in Christ, since you've been regenerated, born again, and filled with His Spirit, you now have that power. You have life. And you have peace. Peace with God that He has made with you through the cross of His Son. And because of that, you have a peace that floods your heart. That your greatest problem, His wrath, is solved and will never come upon you again. Praise the Lord. You are an inheritor and you have that pledge by His Holy Spirit. You have a taste of the kingdom of God now. Romans 14, verse 17. We're going to get to this, Lord willing, as we go along. But Paul defines the kingdom of God in this way. He says, it is not food and drink. It's not the physical. 
but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. It's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ which has been given to you through faith in Him, which gives you His peace, which gives you joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom. That's the inheritance that you have a taste of now. So, what's the point here? The Lord is our inheritance. He is the true inheritance. So, we know the recipients are the children of God. We know the inheritance ultimately is the Lord Himself. Now, the size of the inheritance. How big is this inheritance? Well, that might be a a self-answering question if we have in our minds that it's the Lord Himself that we inherit. We inherit infinity, the infinite glory of God. But what about our share in Him? Let's think about that, our portion in the Lord. Well, Paul is writing to a Roman audience, a Roman and Greek audience, and a Roman culture that they lived in. And in Roman and Greek culture, the inheritance was always divided equally among the children. It's different from Jewish culture where the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance and the children, the remaining children, were divided the rest. But in Roman and Greek culture, every one of the children received an equal portion of the inheritance. And the Scripture teaches us that truth, doesn't it? I mean, in Matthew chapter 20, we have a parable of the workers in the vineyard. We have a picture of a landowner who hires laborers to go into his vineyard, and he hires them at an early hour. And he agrees with them for one denarius, which was a day's wage, to work a full day. And what's interesting about the story is that landowner goes out at later hours in the day, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, even the eleventh hour, which would have been the very last hour of work in a 12-hour workday. And he gives each of those workers the same denarius wage. What does that teach us? But that the gift of salvation, this coin, this denarius, we all inherit. No matter if you come to Christ early in your life or if you come to Him at the 11th hour, so to speak, of your life, the reward is the same. You get eternal life, glory forever with Him. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. In fact, that was the truth that opened my dad's heart to the gospel that he had heard for so many years. He could never forgive himself all his sins. But when the Lord showed him that truth, could be that 11th hour worker, and you will receive the same wage. The Lord melted his heart, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, so yes, this inheritance is the Lord, we all receive Him equally in one sense. We get the denarius. And yet, even though we all receive the same inheritance, the Scripture also teaches that there are differing rewards for faithfulness based on what has been entrusted to us. The parable of the minas, for example, or the minas, uh, those who have a um, greater return on the money that's entrusted to them get a greater reward. The parable of the talents is very similar. The Lord gives to each according to His own ability. He doesn't all give us the same um, entrustment. He gives some one, He gives others two, He gives others five. But what He looks for is faithfulness. And those who return a faithful return on what they've been entrusted, He grants commensurate with that faithfulness. And so you see that some are made masters over five cities and some over ten cities. So there are differing rewards. And 
Perhaps there's something seen of that in the physical inheritance of Israel in the land where you have the 12 tribes and they don't all have exactly the same size allotment in the land, but all of them are inheritors of the land, the promised land. Daniel, the prophet Daniel said this in Daniel 12 verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Hmm. You know, Paul talks about the glory as differing in degrees, and he uses stars as an example. Um, Perhaps it is that we can think of it this way, that we all share in the body of Christ. We all are stars that are um, shining in His sky. Some have a brighter shining than others. Some have more glory than others. But even the faintest star among the panoply of all the stars is infinitely blessed. Paul calls the inheritance the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Saints, it's a treasure chest that has no bottom. Think on these things. Give yourself to them. You will be blessed. So, we know something of the size of the inheritance as the Lord Himself. We have a share in Him. Our call is be faithful with what He's given you. Be faithful. All is from Him. It's all grace. Nothing is earned. And then we want to know something of the timing of the inheritance. When will we receive this inheritance? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's pick up at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, here's the short answer to the question. When are we going to receive this inheritance? It's going to be revealed in the last time. When is that? Well, no man knows the hour when the Lord Himself will descend, when the trumpet will sound and the Lord will descend with a mighty shout, accompanied by His mighty angels. That hour is not known, but here is what we do know. This salvation, Peter says, is ready to be revealed now. In other words, there is nothing more that's required for salvation to be accomplished. It's been all accomplished in Christ. There's nothing needed to earn our salvation. It's all been done in Jesus Christ. And we have the very proof of that. And you know what that is? That He sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts as the pledge. In John 7, we read that it's Jesus who needs to be glorified before the Spirit will be sent. When was Jesus glorified? Well, after He was raised from the dead, resurrected from the dead, and then ascended to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He was glorified. And then the next thing that happens is Pentecost. He pours out His Spirit in fullness upon all His people. That is the proof that salvation has been accomplished 
and we now have the earnest of it in our hearts. Hmm. The salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. It's up to the Lord when He will reveal, when He will unveil that salvation, but there is nothing more to be done. It is to be revealed as soon as He calls in His last children. Hmm. Our text in 1 Peter also answer, answers the next question, which is, what is the certainty of the inheritance? What is the certainty of the inheritance? Can we ever lose it? Can it be corrupted in some way? And Peter very clearly says, in no uncertain terms, this inheritance is incorruptible. That means unable to decay. It's, it cannot deteriorate or pass away. It's undefiled. That means that in its present state, it's not polluted even in the slightest. It's, there's nothing in it that would give it cause or reason to become corrupted over time. And he says it does not fade away. Even the best earthly inheritance, which may last for generations, think about some of the families that have had generational wealth. Eventually, that wealth dries up. It does not last forever and ever. But our inheritance, loved ones, is in heaven where it can never be corrupted. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Your treasure is not on this earth. Your treasure is in heaven where it cannot be corrupted, where no one can take it even if it couldn't be corrupted. And further, this wonderful assurance, God keeps you linked to the inheritance. He keeps you, He says, you who are kept by the power of God through faith. That means He keeps you believing. He keeps you believing and will all the way to the end if you have genuine faith. It will not be lost. So your inheritance can't be lost, and your faith which links you to the inheritance will never be broken. Praise the Lord. This is our sovereign God. This is our gracious God who never begins a work that He cannot finish. So your salvation is guaranteed by the Lord. Um, there is another element of, the, of certainty here that I was questioning with myself whether or not to bring out, but I, I want to share it with you because I think it's a blessing. And it relates to the Jewish understanding of who the inheritors are. As I mentioned, um, those who are the firstborn are the double inheritors, as opposed to in Roman and Greek culture where everyone was an equal inheritor. And I asked myself, well, what's the significance of that perhaps in this context? How does that relate to our confidence in this inheritance? Well, in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah talks about the reverse of the curse upon God's children from receiving double for their sins, which he mentions back in Isaiah chapter 40, and that's when he takes them into captivity for a period of time until the fullness of their sins is paid for. He turns their course from receiving double for their sins to receiving double honor in their redemption. And that's true for all who are the redeemed. We receive a double honor. Listen to this, Isaiah 61 verse 7, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double 
everlasting joy shall be theirs. This is so interesting because the double of the land, what does it mean to possess double? Well, he's saying that the, the Israel of God, the true children, receive the inheritance. That's the blessing. But to know that they receive the inheritance, to be assured of it, is what brings joy. And that's the double blessing. That's the double portion, I believe, that he's talking about. God grants us salvation, but He also means to give us the comfort of that salvation. That's the point of Romans 8, that you should know that you're saved and rejoice in your salvation forever. That gives us great confidence. So, the Lord Himself maintains our inheritance. He maintains us by faith so that we will never lose the inheritance. He gives us assurance that we will that we have this inheritance and we'll never lose it. And then this other point that relates to our certainty, which really is, I would say, the most important point. The reason our inheritance is most certain is this, that we are, as Paul says in Romans 8, 17, joint heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. That means fellow heirs, fellow participants. We are heirs and He is an heir. We are heirs together. Why is that important? Because you see, the ultimate heir, the one to whom the promises of Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 12 and following all throughout Scripture, the one to whom those promises were made was not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or David, or Solomon, or you and me, ultimately. It was made to Jesus Christ. The promises were ultimately made to him. Listen to Titus chapter 1 as it begins. Paul begins to Titus, Titus 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. He promised before time began. Well, to whom did God make the promise when there was no time, no earth, no people? John 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the eternal Word of God who was in the beginning with God and who was with God. That means face to face with God and who was God, who is God. And that it's this Word, this eternal Word who took on flesh and manifested His glory to the world, that we should see Him. So before time began, you have God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's God the Father who made this promise to Jesus Christ that He would be the inheritor of the promises. Later, the promise gets repeated and repeated to all the people we talked about, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. Listen to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. So, who's speaking? This is the Father speaking to the Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The Lord, the God and Father of 
our Lord Jesus Christ, is speaking to the Son, and He says, today I have begotten you. That's not a reference to His being created. That's a reference to His incarnation when He came to this world and was born. Today I have brought you into this world. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Who's that? That's us. The ends of the earth. The nations are the inheritance of the Son. We've been given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. And this promise is made first in eternity. That means God is promising the Son in His divinity. And then He makes the promise a second time when Jesus takes on flesh and He makes the promise to Jesus as the Son of Man. So the promise is ironclad to Jesus divine and Jesus Son of Man. I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. There's the blessing. The Son will receive the worship, praise, and adoration of God's people forever and ever. That's the blessing that He receives. He receives us. He receives the land. He receives the blessing. Jesus is the ultimate heir. He is the promise of the land fulfilled, isn't He? Where is the place where we have rest and peace with God? Hasn't God made His Son, Jesus Christ, the one place where anyone can enter into true rest with God through the forgiveness of their sins? He is the promise of the seed fulfilled. God makes Christ the ultimate seed of Abraham. We saw that in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Galatians 3.16. I don't think I read that for you, but in, in Galatians 3.16, we have that very promise. It is to, not seeds, plural, but to the seed who is Jesus Christ. Listen to how this reads in Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So the promise is made to the Son. He becomes the land, seed, and blessing and in our inheritance. And He will receive His reward. So back to the certainty. God has made Christ the true heir. He has promised Him that He will receive His reward, and He will. God cannot fail in His promise we see a picture of this reward being played out in Revelation chapters 5 and 7 where every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people are praising the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever and ever. The Lamb receives His reward. It's certain. And so here's the argument. If Christ is the true heir and He receives His reward and we are joined to Him supernaturally joined to Him and by faith joined to Him, joint heirs, then what does that say about our inheritance? It's also guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It's rock solid because it's guaranteed for the Son. We inherit the Lord through Jesus Christ. He inherits us through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Marvelous truth. Here's another way of thinking about Christ's inheritance. We are told 
in Hebrews chapter 1 that Christ was appointed the heir of all things. Not just land, seed, blessing categories, but all things. And I don't pretend for a moment to understand all the implications of that. I mean, God is the owner of all things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold, all the silver, it's all His already. Christ, as the eternal Word before anything was ever created, was the owner of all things. And yet, He comes into this world and takes on flesh for the first time ever. That's unique. He becomes fully God and fully man, not diminished in either capacity. And it's in that capacity as the God-man that God appoints Him heir of all things. He becomes the head of a new humanity that didn't exist before, a redeemed humanity. He is heir of all things. And as such, His authority extends over all things. You remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He has authority over all heaven and over all the earth. All authority has been delivered to Him. We're told that He is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Everything has been put under the feet of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that, it's, that God will place everything under Christ's feet. So everything is under His feet, but for a time He has allowed enemies like death to continue to exist. But there is coming a time when every enemy, including death itself, will be placed under His feet. And he will be declared Lord of all, including death, in a final sense. The Lord is the Lord of glory. He is the King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is before all things. He is the preeminent one. Why am I taking the time to go through all this? Because it's vital that we understand the weightiness of Christ as the true heir so that we can understand the weightiness of this statement, you are joint heirs with Christ. God has joined us to the preeminent one, to the one who sustains everything by the word of his power. He has joined us to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who inherits all things and who rules over all things. Is there a more staggering thought to you? And the big implication of our being joint heirs with Christ is if He is one who inherits all things and we are joined to Him, that means that we inherit all things. This was our call to worship this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. All things. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's the reason we inherit all things, because we're linked to the one who has all things. Um, it's important, I think, to maybe address a potential error at this point. There are some who would say, okay, I'm going to reason that if we inherit all things, then we become God at some point. We do not. That is an error that false religions and cults espouse because they do not have a proper view of God to begin with. God, Scripture teaches, is holy. That means He is separate, not just from sin, but He is separate from His creation always. 
The angels will never become God. That was the mistake that Lucifer made. No created person who is even redeemed will ever become God. God always reserves His absolute reign and authority for Himself. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God existing in three persons, and that will never change. But yes, He will perfect us. He will glorify us. He will continue to delight us in Himself and unveil the beauty of His glory, His attributes to us forever. We will never grow tired of learning about our Lord and seeing His glory. He will continue to delight us through all the ages. That's something of the glory of being joined to the Holy One. Is it a wonder to anyone here that the Lord of glory would share His own inheritance with us? That Jesus Christ would share His own glory with us? I mean, is it not enough that He would simply rescue us from hell? Uh, Couldn't we say with the prodigal son, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That'll be enough. And you know what? We would be perfectly content as slaves in the Lord's household forever. But that's not how that story of the prodigal son ends. Father brings out the best robe and he puts it on this wayward son. And he brings the ring and sets it on his finger and he places the sandals on his feet. All signs that he was restored to full sonship. He belonged to the father. And he was not diminished in his sonship one bit. This is the love of our God, brethren. This is the incredible grace of our God. He doesn't just elevate us a little, but he exalts us all the way to the heavenlies where we are seated with Christ even now. This was the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when she said, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. And you know something amazing? His throne of glory is not diminished even one bit by our sharing it with him. Not even a bit. Why? Because his glory is infinite. It doesn't diminish. It can't diminish. In fact, the opposite is true He receives more glory by redeeming us as sinners and sharing His glory with us than if He had not redeemed us at all. In other words, if we had never fallen in Adam, if we had just continued in that state of perfection, God would not have received as much glory as He is and will by redeeming sinners like us. You say, how do you know that? Because we know that God's glory is preeminent to Himself. Everything He does is done to maximize His glory. And so He saw it fit to allow mankind to fall in order that He would redeem them to maximize His glory. Everything the Lord does is purposed to maximize His glory. And we can be confident in that. We are joint heirs with Christ We share in the promises made to Christ. We share in His experiences, don't we? We share in His death. We share in His resurrection. But we also share in His reward. Next week, we're going to look at another component of what we share in, which is His suffering. His suffering, a vital component that we must understand. But today, let's just finish up with, we know the recipients. 
We have some idea of the description, the size, the timing, the certainty of the inheritance. What's now the attitude of the heir? How is it that we should respond knowing that we are joint heirs with Christ who gives us salvation, who gives us a double portion, the assurance of salvation, that we would rejoice in Him forever, who gives us assurance that this salvation can never, ever be lost or diminished. What should be our response? I would say it should be the response that King David gave in Psalm 16, 5 again. O Lord, You are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. That's spoken by a man who knows his ultimate satisfaction is in the Lord, not in the things of this earth. And loved ones, this inheritance we have, this is not earned. We've said that many times, but this is good to refresh on. This is all by grace. It's free grace for us, but never forget that that comes at a great cost to God Himself. We learned this principle back in Romans chapter 5, verse 21. He says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Righteousness is a requirement for God to extend His grace to us. In other words, God would not be just if He simply forgave people and never dealt with their sin. He would not be a just God, a good God, if He simply joined us to Christ and made us heirs, but never did anything to deal with our sin. He is both just and the justifier, because in His infinite wisdom, He has planned from eternity to redeem us. And He's planned to do that by sending His Son, His only Son, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not as a sinner. He was born without sin, unlike us. And he lived a life of perfect sinlessness, obeying the Father in every word, thought, and deed. And he willingly went to the cross, was obedient to the Father's will to go to the cross, to submit to death, even the death of the cross, a cruel death for us. He took our sins and placed them on his shoulders willingly. And in return, like the father with the prodigal, he takes his robe of righteousness and wraps us in it. So that when the father looks at his children, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's grace. Marvelous grace. He joins us to Christ because he's dealt with our sins once and for all. We are forgiven in Christ. That is good news, brothers and sisters. Had God not done that for us in Christ, we would still receive an inheritance, by the way. That inheritance is the lake of fire. It's eternal death. The fool inherits the wind. Nothing. Worse than nothing. Barrenness forever. A torment of soul. Loved ones or friends, if you are in that position where you are perhaps not trusting in Christ this morning, you're not walking in newness of life. I urge you, call on the name of the Lord. This still is the day of salvation. The, the windows of heaven, grace is still open for those who will receive this offer of forgiveness of sins in Christ. You are not too far gone, whoever you are. You've not sinned beyond a point of 
being unable to be forgiven. In God's economy, even the laborer who comes in at the 11th hour receives that same full reward as the one who's been laboring in the toil of the sun for all day, his whole life. Praise the Lord. No. Put your confidence in the Lord alone. And for those who are saved and who are trusting and who are walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh any longer, do you see why it's so important that you know that you're an inheritor this morning? If you possess all things, and truly in Christ you do, how should that affect how we think about the grip that we hold on the things in this world? Do we need to hold on to anything material very tightly if in fact we are inheritors of every spiritual blessing in Christ? Are you delighting in your divine inheritance this morning? I pray that you are. Are you assured of it? That's what this is about. Romans chapter 8. He wants us to know. And you know, as we get into the next section, this becomes especially important. This knowledge that we are developing now is the knowledge that we need to have when we enter suffering. Because suffering is promised for every child of God. We're going to develop this theology of suffering next week, Lord willing. But we need to understand our inheritance and keep our eyes on the prize, not on the things below. Because suffering is ordained for our glory. We are treading the same path that our Lord Jesus Christ trod. And that is one of suffering, ordained by God for glory ultimately, for glory. Let us keep our eyes on the prize and worship the Lord with all our hearts. Let's pray, loved ones. Father, pray now that you would do what only you can do and that you would apply this wonderful word to our hearts, that we would know the inheritance you've given us, that we would delight in you, that we would recognize the evidences of the Holy Spirit in our lives as you lead us, as you prompt us to cry out to you when we are in distress, and also when we see uh, many things, Father, that you've created that point to how wonderful you are. Father, we pray for our communion with you that it would grow stronger, that you would cause us to walk in your way, that you would cause us to set our eyes on things above, that, Father, you would show us the worthlessness of and the, the fleeting nature of the things of this earth, how they pale in comparison to your glory. Father, thank you for the work of grace you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for each brother and sister here who is walking with you and trusting in you. And for those, Father, who perhaps are being awakened for the first time, I pray, Father, that you would hold them fast and that you would direct their steps and that they would rejoice in the Lord and grow from glory to glory by the Spirit through this marvelous word. In Jesus' name, amen.